This is ACSM Chapter 42, Environmental Injuries, talking about hypothermia, frostbite, heat illness, and altitude illness. So first, let's talk about hypothermia. Definition of such is when the body's core temperature drops below 35 degrees Celsius or 95 degrees Fahrenheit. Individuals younger than two years of age and older than 60 years of age are at most risk. Increasing homelessness in sports activities and inclement environments have contributed to an increased incidence of hypothermia in the past decade. And risk factors include use of intoxicants, psychiatric illness, medical illnesses, sleep deprivation, dehydration, malnutrition, and trauma. Impaired judgment resulting from psychiatric illness or the use of ethanol is the most common predisposing factor. So just think of reasons why they might be out in the cold um, on their own. So psych, intoxicants, illness, and then food or hydration deprivation. So pathophysiology. The body combats the fall in core temperature through shivering thermogenesis and increased gluconeogenesis. When the core temperature drops below 35 degrees Celsius, the victim becomes poikilothermic and cools to the ambient temperature, and they actually stop shivering. CNS function is directly depressed by the cold. An EEG becomes abnormal below a temperature of 33.5 degrees Celsius or 92.5 Fahrenheit and silent at 66 degrees Fahrenheit or 19 Celsius. Initial reflex tachypnea continues until core temperature falls below 30 degrees Celsius or 86 degrees Fahrenheit. Failure of brainstem control of respiratory drive and the freezing of thoracic musculature eventually lead to cessation of breathing. Cold triggers peripheral vasoconstriction and tachycardia to kind of shunt blood to the needed organs. Below 34 degrees Celsius or 93 Fahrenheit, bradycardia, hypotension, decreased cardiac output, and a lengthening of cardiac electrical conduction ensue. A J-wave Osborne hypothermic hump may be noted at the QRS to ST junction. The myocardium becomes increasingly irritable and spontaneous atrial and ventricular dysrhythmias can occur. So just think colder it is, tries to shunt to needed organs, but then it tires out. Then you get bradycardic, hypotensive, decreased cardiac output, and then arrhythmias. Below 82 degrees Fahrenheit, V-fib can develop with minor stimuli, such as removing patient's wet clothing or ambulance transports that do not bump the patient, um, like in the simulation. So clinical features. Nonspecific symptoms and signs predominate and mimic the effects of mild dementia or ethanol intoxication. The CNS effects of cold lead to impaired memory and judgment, slurred speech, decreased alertness, paradoxic bradycardia and hypoventilation occur despite hypotension. Multiple cardiac dysrhythmias develop as the core temperature falls. A cold-induced ileus, abdominal spasm, and rigidity can mimic an acute abdomen. So for diagnosis, an accurate core temperature is crucial and is ideally obtained with a rectal thermistor probe. At a minimum, a rectal temperature obtained with a thermometer scaled for hypothermia is required. Oral and ear temperatures are grossly inaccurate, and core temp above 35 can rapidly exclude hypothermia. Hypothermia is classified as mild, moderate, or severe based on the core temp. Common laboratory findings include a falsely elevated hematocrit caused by dehydration, low leukocyte count caused by sequestration, 
hyperamylasemia resulting from pancreatic injury. Oh, hyperamylasemia. And aberrant coagulation profile, hypokalemia and hypoglycemia caused by glycogen depletion. Below 30 degrees Celsius, insulin is rendered inactive and a paradoxic hyperglycemia can ensue. Again, the severity so mild is less than 95, but greater than 91 degrees Fahrenheit, 35 to 33. Clinical features of mild to be maximum shivering, ataxia, apathy, tachypnea. You're going to treat them with passive external warming. Um, moderate is going to be below 32 degrees Celsius and 90 degrees Fahrenheit. They're going to get stuporous, stop shivering at a moderate point. you got to have active core rewarming. And then severe is going to be less than that. There's three different degrees, so less than 28. You have decreased ventricular fibrillation threshold and hypoventilation. Less than 14 with lowest adult accidental hypothermia survival. And less than 9 degrees Celsius or 40 degrees Fahrenheit, lowest therapeutic survival. For all those, need active core rewarming. So treatment, field treatment should focus on gentle handling of the victim so as to not cause cardiac dysrhythmias. Wet clothing should be removed and dry clothing or a blanket applied. Massage of cold injured limbs should be avoided. It can damage fragile frozen parts and trigger dysrhythmias. So traumatic injuries to the spine or limbs should be stabilized. Airway should be maintained and cardiac monitoring begun if it's available. If the skin is frozen, needle electrodes should be used or can be fashioned by passing a 20-gauge needle through an electrode pad into the frozen skin. If the patient is alert, warm, non-caffeinated beverages can be provided. Fluid resuscitation with IV, 5% dextrose and normal saline, D5 normal saline, should be started. Lactated ringers should be avoided because of problems with metabolism of lactate by a cold, injured liver. ER treatment should focus on rewarming of the patient. Defibrillation is generally limited to one countershock until the core temperature is raised above 30 degrees Celsius or 86 Fahrenheit. It may also be reasonable to perform defibrillation attempts concurrent with rewarming, regardless of core temperature. Medications may be less effective with severe hypothermia, but it is not unreasonable to consider use of vasopressors according to standard ACLS algorithms. Passive external rewarming by covering the victim with a blanket or wrap is ideal in an alert patient whose core temp is greater than 32 degrees celsius or 90 degrees fahrenheit below 90 rewarming should proceed with active core rewarming concurrent with active external rewarming active core rewarming can be accomplished with iv d5 normal saline warm to 104 to 108 degrees fahrenheit 40 to 42 or the inhalation of humidified oxygen which is warmed as well more invasive techniques to include uh, peritoneal lavage with dialysate, warranted 104 to 108, thoracic lavage with normal saline at 104 to 108, or warming of the GI tract with gastric slash colonic lavage. So fires, hot water bottles, and heating pads should be employed when active core rewarming has already begun to avoid the life-threatening risk of core temperature after drop. This devastating process occurs when sudden exposure of vasoconstricted cool extremities to active external rewarming causes peripheral vasodilation, drop in central blood pressure, and sudden influx of cool blood from the periphery to the core that can trigger a dysrhythmia and shock. Prevention 
is with good conditioning, proper nutrition, experience, leadership in backcountry environments, normal hydration, and avoidance of ethanol or tobacco, and habituation to the cold environment. The use of proper clothing to prevent hypothermia. Clothing choice centers on the three L's, layered, loose, and lightweight. Waterproof outer layers key. If exercise is occurring in a temperature of less than zero degrees Fahrenheit, three layered hand and footwear are optimal for prevention of frostbite. Well, let's talk about frostbite. Frostbite's freezing of tissues leading to damage. Frost nip is the formation of superficial ice crystals and causes no tissue damage. Chilblains is an autoimmune lymphocytic vasculitis common in women, which leads to localized nodules or ulcers on the extremities 12 hours after cold exposure. So frostbite is most common in active individuals from 30 to 49 years of age. High-risk outdoor activities in inclement environments account for a large percentage of them. Risk factors are... Uh, so for behavioral, ethanol use, psychiatric illness, motor vehicle problems, homelessness, smoking, improper clothing, and high-risk outdoor activities. Organic would be having a prior cold injury, wound infection, atherosclerosis, diabetes, or fatigue. So anything with poor blood supply. Um, <clears throat> ethanol and psychiatric problems underlie up to 70% of most cases of frostbite. The need for amputation correlates more with duration of cold exposure rather than the lowness of the temperature. Think of time in the cold. This explains why the impaired judgment resulting from ethanol use and psychiatric illness account for such a large percentage of injuries. Anatomic sites of injury include, um, in order of most common occurrence, feet and hands, 90%, ears, nose, cheeks, and the penis. Particular concern for runners. So pathophysiology. There are three synchronous pathways that lead to tissue damage and frostbite. Tissue freezing, hypoxia, and the release of inflammatory mediators. Each pathway multiplies and catalyzes, um, catalyzes the damage caused by the other pathways. Freezing leads to denaturation of the membrane lipid protein matrix and cellular disruption. Hypoxia occurs from the cold induced vasoconstriction that triggers acidosis, increased viscosity, microthrombosis, and vessel endothelial damage. Inflammatory mediators are released from damaged endothelium, which triggers more vasoconstriction, platelet aggregation, thrombosis, hypoxia, and cell death. Same prostaglandins are found in the blister fluid of heat and frostbite damaged skin. Release of these prostaglandins peaks during rewarming, therefore cycles of recurrent freezing and rewarming must be avoided to lessen the extent of injury. Uh, clinical features include numbness, clumsiness, tingling, and throbbing pain after rewarming. Signs of frostbite were classically divided in first through fourth degrees. The scheme is not prognostically useful, however, it is better to distinguish between two types of injury, superficial and deep frostbite. Superficial is characterized by normal skin color, large blisters filled with clear or milky fluid, intact pinprick sensation and skin that will indent with pressure. Deep shows small, blood-filled, dark blisters, non-blanching cyanosis, and skin that is wooden to the touch and will not indent with pressure. So diagnosis, tissue viability is not ultimately determined until 22 to 45 days after the injury. Primary utility of diagnostic tests to help define tissue viability at an earlier time. Doppler flow studies and angio can determine tissue viability and predict the need for surgical intervention as early as seven days after injury. 
Technetium 99M scintigraphy can be employed as soon as 72 hours from injury to assess tissue viability with a PPV of 0.84 for viable tissue. Scanner day 7 raises the PPV to 0.92. MRI MRA may emerge as the optimal modality for earlier tissue assessment. Treatment includes field warming, so field warming should not be instituted until refreezing can be prevented. So don't warm it until you know it won't get frozen again. Injured part should be protected with a loose bulky splint during transport for definitive care. Hypothermia should be treated first. Smoking, ethanol, and massage of the frozen part should be avoided. Definitive emergency department care is outlined in the table 42.3. Adjuvant therapies with heparin, warfarin, steroids, dextran, vitamin C, and hyperbaric oxygen have not been proven to be helpful. Pentoxifylline or Trental has been shown to be useful in pre frostbite only. So stepwise treatment of frostbite. First, treat hypothermia and any concomitant injuries. Two, rapidly rewarm the affected parts in water at 40 to 42 degrees Celsius, 104 to 108, until thawing is complete and the skin is pliable in texture, about 15 to 30 minutes or so. To breed the blisters filled with clear milky fluid, apply aloe vera and cover with bulky dressing. You gotta leave the hemorrhagic blisters intact though. You're gonna splint and elevate the extremity and administer ibuprofen at standard doses. Give a tetanus toxoid and tetanus globulin if needed. Administer IV penicillin every six hours for 72 hours. And if they're allergic, Clinda. Treat their pain with narcotics as needed. Begin daily hydrotherapy and hexachlorophene at 40 degrees Celsius for 30 to 60 minutes daily and no smoking. Alright, now let's talk about the opposite, so heat illness. Definitions. Heat illness is best thought of as a continuum of disease that progresses a long spectrum from mild heat cramps to the moderate heat exhaustion to life-threatening heat stroke. Heat cramps are involuntary, painful contractions of skeletal muscle typically occurring during or after prolonged exercise. Heat exhaustion is a sign of systemic vascular strain in the body's attempt to maintain normal thermia. If untreated, it may progress to heat stroke. Heat stroke occurs when heat generation exceeds heat loss, leading to a rise in core temperature and thermoregulatory failure. Classical heat strokes confined to individuals without access to cool environments or debilitated by medical illness. Exertional heat stroke is the form most common in athletes defined by rectal temperature than 40 degrees Celsius uh, with CNS changes. Epidemiology. The frequency of heat illness correlates with the wet bulb globe temperature. Wet bulb globe temp is the wet bulb temp times 0.7 plus the dry bulb times 0.1 plus the black globe times 0.2. Where the wet bulb represents the humidity, dry bulb is the air temperature, and the black globe is the radiant heat. Risk factors for exertional heat stroke include obesity, low physical fitness, dehydration, fatigue, recent episode of heat illness, uh, viral infection, febrile illness, sleep deprivation, wear of impermeable garments, lack of acclimatization, and medicines or supplements that decrease sweating and increase thermogenesis, antihistamines, ephedra, caffeine, diuretics, ADHD medications. 
Pathophysiology cause of heat cramps is unclear. Heat illness occurs when heat storage outpaces heat loss that leads to deleterious changes at the cellular level. Core temp greater than 41 degrees Celsius leads to release of many inflammatory mediators, including IL-1, IL-6, and TNF. These cytokines amplify cellular and endothelial damage that trigger systemic vascular collapse and multi-organ failure. So for features, symptoms of heat exhaustion and heat stroke overlap. Diagnosis of heat stroke rests not on absolute temperature criteria. Rather, it's due to the presence of an altered mental status and the progression of disease despite first-line treatments. The initial symptoms include headache, dizziness, fatigue, irritability, anxiety, chills, nausea, vomiting, and heat cramps. Seizures and distorted thoughts are evidence of heat stroke. Signs include a core temp greater than 40, tachycardia, hyperventilation, hypotension, and syncope. A lack of spontaneous cooling with sensation of exertion and profuse sweating that ceases despite an elevated core temp are both ominous signs that point toward heat stroke. The diagnosis hinges on an elevated core temperature combined with the presence of the symptoms and signs noted earlier. Ideally, this temp should be rectal. Any collapse during exertion should include heat illness in the differential and early core temperature measurement is critical. I've noted healthy athletes can raise their core temp to 39 simply from exertion alone and be asymptomatic. Lab tests are normal until heat stroke is present. Lab alterations such as increased liver function tests, disorder coagulation profile, leukocytosis, electrolyte disturbance, and evidence of acute renal failure, nonspecific and similar to other shock states. So for treatment, the key is to not delay treatment while trying to determine where on the continuum of heat illness a particular patient is located. Immediate treatment increases the likelihood of the body's return to normal thermoregulation and prevents progression to heat stroke. Field treatment should involve cessation of activity, removal to a shaded cool environment, fluid replacement beverages, and fanning after spraying the patient with a cool mist. Heat cramps can be treated with passive stretching of the affected muscles. In case of altered mental status, seizures, or a core temp greater than 104, so heat stroke, heat stroke should be presumed. Immediate whole body cooling with cold water immersion is the key to a successful outcome, and the patient should be cooled prior to being evacuated. If the patient responds to field treatment, he or she should avoid exertion for at least 24 to 48 hours to avoid a transient but increased risk of recurrent heat illness. Heat stroke treatment involves the nine steps shown in table 42.4. So those are first immediate cooling ice water immersion is best if not fanning the uh, after the misting the patient should be undertaken cool until rectal temp reaches 39 degrees celsius or 102.2 second avoid antipyretics hypothalamic set point is normal antipyretics can aggravate hepatic or renal injury avoid alcohol baths vasodilated skin can lead to systemic absorption Monitor the core temp until it is less than 38 or less than 100.5. Consider Valium, Diazepam 5 mg or Lorazepam 2 mg to control shivering and as prophylaxis against seizures. Monitor renal function closely. Early dialysis is indicated. Correct persistent electrolyte abnormalities. Check coags at admission serially until 72 hours have passed. Use FFP and or platelets as needed. And rehydrate vigorously, monitor for fluid and hypernatremia.
Of note, concerns that ice water immersion would increase seizures or trigger shivering thermogenesis have been allayed by recent studies. So there's five big keys to prevention. First, acclimatization to high heat and humidity for 10 to 14 days prior to competition is ideal. First four to five days are when two key physiologic changes occur. Jesus, sweat composition and increase in the ability of the body to rapidly dissipate heat. Clothing should be light colored, lightweight, and offer sun protection. That's number two, clothing. Medications three that impair heat loss should be stopped or changed. For example, change antihistamines to nasal steroids, treat an allergic rhinitis, stop ephedra compounds, stimulants, etc. Four, activity planning or reduction should be based on the wet bulb globe temperature wet bulb globe temperature less than 65 lowers for heat illness 65 to 72 is high risk individuals should be monitored 72 to 78 risk rises for all 78 to 82 high risk individuals should not exercise 82 to 86 unacclimated or unfit athletes should stop 86 to 90 exercise should be limited for even fit and acclimated individuals and greater than 90 all activity should stop and then step five prehydration and hydration per acsm recommendations so drink 16 ounces of water or sports beverages several hours before exercises. Goal of drinking is to prevent a greater than 2% body weight loss. Should be customized to the activity in the athlete. About 400 to 800 mils, 13 to 27 ounces per hour is a reasonable amount of fluid consumption to recommend. After, replace each kilo of weight lost with 1.5 liters of fluids. All right, last scenario is altitude illness. Um, rapid, so definitions. Rapid ascent past 8,000 feet leads to onset of physiologic effects of decreased oxygen concentration at altitude. These effects are most pronounced for those attempting exercise at altitude, and several clinical syndromes exist. High altitude headache, HAH, the first symptom of altitude exposure. May or may not progress to acute mountain sickness. EMS, or acute mountain sickness, is a syndrome that includes HAH and at least one of four symptoms. Nausea, vomiting, fatigue, or lassitude, dizziness, or insomnia. So insomnia, dizziness, nausea, vomiting, fatigue. The Lake Louise Acute Mountain Sickness Scoring System, LLS, can be used as a tool to screen for EMS. High-altitude cerebral edema, HACE, is the clinical progression of the EMS so that severe CNS symptoms develop, such as ataxia, Alter consciousness, confusion, drowsiness, stupor, or coma. High altitude pulmonary edema, HAPE, is the most common cause of altitude-related death. It's characterized by clastic signs of pulmonary edema. Wet cough, dyspnea at rest, weakness, and orthopnea. Altitude illness is most common in the unacclimatized, regardless of fitness level, who ascend rapidly past 8,000 feet. The severity is linked to the rate of ascent. Altitude attained. Sleeping altitude, length of altitude exposure, level of exertion, and individuals' inherent physiologic susceptibility that remains static despite re-exposure. So for the pathophys, a rapid rate of ascent, an inappropriately slowed hypoxic ventilatory response to ambient hypoxia and hypercarbia, fluid retention, and vasogenic edema are the initial pathologic changes. Days later, cerebral edema, pulmonary hypertension, and alveolar leakage lead to death untreated. <clears throat> Maximal oxygen uptake, VO2 max, falls 10% for each 3,281 feet of altitude gained over 5,000 feet. VO2 max at sea level is not predictive of performance at altitude. 
Many of the world's elite mountaineers have averaged sea level VO2 max values. Past performance and personal problems with altitude fitness are the best predictors of future performance and the need for aggressive preventive interventions. So for your differential diagnosis, any of the symptoms of AMS on ascent past 8,000 feet should trigger suspicion for altitude illness. Key differential diagnostic considerations include dehydration, hypothermia, and a viral infection. Dehydration can be differentiated by response to a fluid challenge. Hypothermia can be distinguished by a lower, low core temperature and improvement with exertion slash increased body temperature. Altitude illness worsens with exertion. Although viral syndromes have similar symptoms, they are typically accompanied by fever, myalgia, or diarrhea, and are more subacute in onset than AMS. Dyspnea at rest, worsening of symptoms after sleeping, and gait disturbance point toward altitude illness. Abnormal tandem gait is a sensitive examination finding for severe AMS progressing to haste. Improvement with descent confirms the diagnosis. So for treatment, initial field treatment involves stopping the ascent and rest. A lack of improvement in 12 hours should lead to a descent in altitude. So 12 hours. Typically, descending 1,000 to 3,000 feet is sufficient. Acetazolamide, 125 to 250 milligrams twice a day, should be given. If available, low-flow oxygen and portable hyperbaric bags are helpful. Additional useful medications are ibuprofen or aspirin for headache and promethazine or propoparazine for nausea and vomiting. Treatment of haste or HAPE should include immediate descent and evacuation. Dexamethasone, 4 mg every 6 hours for haste, and nifedipine, 10 mg um, once, followed by 30 mg extended release twice a day, should be ensued for HAPE. So HAPE, think nifedipine, haste, think dex. Hospital treatment will also include high flow oxygen or hyperbaric oxygen and loop diuretics for pulmonary edema, like Lasix. Mechanical ventilation is only required in cases of coma. Prevention altitude illness can be pre <coughs> prevented by a proper acclimatization, physiologic changes of hyperventilation, tachycardia, and erythropoiesis, and a variety of cellular changes take from minutes to months to reach their peak. <coughs> Other things for prevention. Begin exertion below 8,000 feet. Spend two to three nights sleeping between eight to 10,000 feet before ascending above 10,000 feet. Sleep no more than 1,500 feet higher each day above 10,000. Avoid alcohol or sedatives. Avoid dehydration or hypothermia. Consider acetazolamide 125 to 250 milligrams orally BID beginning the day before ascent. For any individual with a prior history of acute mountain sickness when climbing above 11,400 or when acclimatization is not possible. If Lake Louise AMS score of 3 or higher, do not ascend. Descend if they don't improve in 12 hours. Reserve decks for the treatment of severe AMS or high altitude cerebral edema.